Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Mostly Weather podcast. So my name is Neil Robinson and this is my first podcast for a couple of episodes, so it's good to be back, guys. We've missed you, Neil. Yeah, thanks very much, Doug. So as you heard, I'm here with uh, regular podcast host Doug McNeil. Hello there. And this week we've got special guest Eddie Carroll. Say hello, Eddie. Hi there. Okay, so this week's episode is about fronts, jets and pressure. So that's a terribly big subject, but fortunately we've got Eddie here to help us through all the gnarly bits. So... This is just the week when um, other two regular presenters, Claire and Jeff, are off. And those are the weather geeks amongst us, aren't they? Doug and me, we're really climate bods. Climate, oceanography, not so much weather. So I'm going to learn a lot here. So the good, yeah, the good news of that is we've got plenty of stupid questions for Eddie, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> the stupider the better. Yeah, good. that's what I like to hear. Uh, that's the mostly weather spirit, isn't it? So Eddie, tell us a bit about what you do at the Met Office and what your job is here. Well, I'm a chief operational meteorologist, which means that I'm very much involved in looking at the weather day to day, essentially deciding what the forecast is going to be, but obviously with the help of lots of numerical models and things like that. Brilliant. And how long have have you been working at the Met Office, Eddie? Oh, God. I joined the Met Office in 1981, on the 3rd of August, actually, so it's not not long past my anniversary, so a long time. Yeah, but I, I've been doing this job for 17 years. I was going to say, and, and chief, I always thought the chief, chief meteorologist or was, you know, there's one, but we've got several, haven't we? We do. Is that right? you we do shifts? They work long time, but we can't make them work all the time. Can't oh, we? Uh, <laughs> no, we're always, it's a 24-7 thing, so you can't do that with one person. There are about seven of us. So the, the, this isn't chief meteorologist, this is chief operational. Okay. So it's very much concerned with, with the day-to-day weather, keeping a handle on that. So, yeah, there are about seven of us doing 12-hour shifts uh, so that there's somebody there 24-7. So I thought we'd start off talking from the big scale and work our way down. So, Doug, before on the podcast, we've talked a bit about general circulation, haven't we? Yeah, we've, yeah talked about general, we've talked about the atmosphere and, and circulation in general, I think, but, but not in the really specific yeah. um, so, uh, style so, we're going to get to here today, I think. Yeah, so, so Eddie, this, this, this is about how the air moves around in the really big scale on the globe, right? So, so what do we mean by general circulation? Yeah, large-scale motion. I mean, I think that the main features of the general circulation come to light when you look at average uh, flow over long periods of time. Um, and that, in a sense, runs counter to perhaps our direct interest today because what I'm interested in is the, the really well-defined weather systems, which actually tend to get smoothed out when you look at the general circulation. Okay, so we're talking about sort of um, flow of air over the scale of, you know, over the entire globe. So we, it breaks down into three cells in each hemisphere, right? So three big blocks of air, is that right? Yeah, that's right. There's the Hadley cell, there's the feral cell, which again really arises only when you look at the average airflow over long periods of time. Uh-huh. And then there's a separate polar circulation too. So, so that's why, moving why, from... Sorry, go on. sorry now. Uh, so that's moving from the uh, equator with the Hadley cell yes. to the feral cell in sort of mid-latitudes and the polar cell, obviously, polar cell. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's in each hemisphere, right? That's so we're working hemisphere. from the equator out in each direction. Okay, and, and I, I guess I, I, I like to declare an interest here. I'd like to know how these how these big circulation patterns, you know, by the end of the episode, I'd like to know how these big circulation patterns and how the, the dynamics and the movements of the atmosphere control our weather yeah. here where we are. So yeah. we're in the UK, uh, a lot of our listeners are in the UK, but, you know, specifically so, where we're sat, yeah. how do you move from that kind of large-scale stuff down to the yeah. local weather system? And so we're, we're talking about these cells, and these cells are, are circulations of air, so they rise up at the equator and then and then down further towards the, you know, a third of the way towards the pole. 
and then we've got another so kind of cell going the other direction on top of that and then the polar cell goes the same way again so up just sort of north of us and then down at the pole is that right that's right although it has to be said those two last cells that you referred to aren't really obvious if you look at a snapshot of the weather i mean the hadley cell is a fairly well-defined fairly permanent circulation which which is generally in evidence the other two very much arise out of average flow and i suppose the principal significance for looking at these things in this way in the first instance is to explain why we get quite well-defined temperature gradients yeah so why do we get these cells at all you know what what's causing this movement to happen well, the Hadley cell uh, is probably the easiest one to explain. And in a very simplistic way, you can think of it because air is heated more at the equator than it is at higher latitudes, that air tends to rise. And so you get this rising limb of air, which then moves polewards at high levels and sinks at approximately 30 degrees. So this is just latitude. very large scale convection, basically. It, that's that's a, a perfectly, it's not a precise way of thinking about it, but it's a perfectly adequate way of thinking about it, I would say, yes. <laughs> large scale convection. We're, we're yeah. good with perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it does do is it contains the, um, the warmer part of the Earth's atmosphere within this fairly well-defined region between roughly the equator and roughly 30 degrees. And so it's not a mechanism for spreading the heat evenly right across the hemisphere whichever hemisphere you're yeah because about. physics wants to physics doesn't like gradients it doesn't Precisely. like potential yeah. it likes to even stuff out yeah. so it's hotter at the equator than it is at the poles yeah. um so it wants to distribute that heat so that's what's driving all this to happen right it is yeah that's right so so you you quite like you're quite right we don't like very very strong thermal gradients um um, the Hadley cell is a perfectly adequate mechanism for to redistribute the heat over a limited latitude range, but it doesn't explain the redistribution over a large latitude range. And on its own, it would still lead to very, very large temperature gradients equated to pole. If you considered simply the radiative forcing, you know, the interception of solar radiation by by the Earth, and then the uh, emission of long wave radiation, and you didn't account for any actual circulations to redistribute redistribute that heat you would end up with very very strong temperature gradients so so that's the hadley cell and then the just to skip over the middle cell where we live to the polar cell that's that's rotating the same way so that's redistributing heat in, in a much smaller sense um polewards again right which is what you'd expect because physics doesn't like gradients but then the feral cell in the middle where we live and i always sort of i don't know if this is a good way of thinking about it but i always think about these like cogwheels so if you imagine these are cogwheels the middle cog in the feral cell is going the opposite way just because nature also doesn't like discontinuities where things are rubbing that's the way i think about it so this cell's sort of rotating the wrong way around which means that it's doing the opposite of redistributing heat so why is that happening then um I would say that it it happens in a very indirect way, and it's certainly not, as you suggest, convectively driven as, as the others are. And in a sense, I wouldn't want to get too drawn into that particular circulation because uh, because it it's probably best described as the result of of, of the the. Um, the sort of thing I want to get on to talking about, which is the existence of these mid-latitude pressure systems. That's really interesting because I was about to ask you a question that was the other way around. 
So I, I was I always thought, and maybe this isn't the right way of thinking about it. I always thought that the energy has not been redistributed by this circulation, but there's a terribly large amount of energy that's been moved forwards by big weather systems. And you don't tend to get these mid-latitude storms. Obviously, you don't get the mid-latitude ones, but you don't tend to get these kind of storms in the tropics, right? You get more sort of convective storms. Um, and and I always sort of think about this as uh, energy rebalancing itself in this sort of volatile kind of uh, way where it snaps off a storm to try and pump this energy northwards. Is that a reasonable way of thinking about it? Or? Yeah, I mean, you can think of these mid-latitude storms as like blenders, which which kind of move west to east through the mid-latitudes and and pull up the warm air on the forward side and pull down the cold air on the rearward side, where you get the northerlies in the, the wake of these uh, cyclonic systems, you know, because you think of the air rotating in the northern hemisphere anti-cyclonically, or sorry, cyclonically around these things, anti-clockwise rather. Yeah. Um, they're going to pull the cold air equatorwards in their wake, and on the forward side, they're going to pull the, the tropical air... I see. Um, ...polewards. So, that, so they're... It's not a simple cause and effect type thing whereby you can think of, as you referred to, a convective type circulation. Uh, but the interesting question is why, how these systems arise. And they do arise because of the temperature gradients which build, build up. Okay, okay. So this is a sort of redistribution of p- potential energy in a way. Yeah, you can think... Well, that, that, well it's, 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 it's redistribution of heat in the first instance... Um, the potential energy, you're quite right, potential energy comes into it because as the, as the equatorial regions intercept heat and warm up, that raises the centre of gravity of the atmosphere because as you, as you warm the air, um, and, and perhaps a, a good way to think of it is um, in, in convection, for instance, what you have is a volume of warm air rising, yeah. but there has to be an equal volume sinking somewhere, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is of colder air. And the net result is a lowering of the centre of gravity. So centre of gravity is reasonably complicated to think about on a flat surface, but yeah. doing it on a spinning yeah. globe yeah. <laughs> potentially complicates things. Before we, I think we're almost done with general circulation. I've got one more question. Yeah, I, I, I was just that, that, that you mentioned the, the, the storms at these middle latitudes. Now, mm. I, I remember being asked a long time ago, uh, why is it stormier, stormier in the winter? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and is this and and you mentioned the the temperature gradients and and this is because the temperature gradients are higher. Yeah. Uh, during the winter, is that right? That's so right. In, yeah. in, in these mid latitudes, yeah, uh, because the equatorial regions that there isn't much seasonal variation in temperature. The polar regions, you know, particularly with the very very long nights, constant long wave radiation, get colder and colder. So you're quite right. Bigger thermal gradients in winter and therefore more storminess. Right. So I've got, I've got a question. Why three cells? I'm slightly trying to avoid this question, because, <laughs> as you may have imagined, uh, because... It, because, it, I, I, because. I, yeah, just, just think of it as because. I mean, I, I think the, the existence of the so-called feral cell and the polar cell very much um, are just, just fall out as... as I, I'm slightly even sceptical about, you know, d- describing them as, as concrete things as cells. Yeah. They're very much a sort of when you look at the the atmospheric flow over long periods of time and average them out. And even when you do that, they're nothing like as well marked as the. That's really interesting. So you're saying this is our mental model, right? This isn't really something that you fly up in a plane and measure and see directly happening. It's simply to make your cogs fit. (laughs) Both my mental and metaphorical cogs. So uh, as I understand it, though, 
the, the reason these cells sort of have the properties they do is simply a consequence of the viscosity of the air, the size of the globe and the speed it's spinning at. And you can perturb those parameters and then you'll end up with six cells instead of three, you know, conceptual cells rather than actual cells. Is that, is that reasonable? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. The Earth spin is very important. If the Earth weren't spinning, we'd have one big Hadley cell. Yeah. In fact, things get even more complicated because if we were to face the same side of the Earth were facing the sun all the time, there would be all sorts of other... This, this is the kind of cool question, cruel question you get asked in your PhD vibe, yeah, isn't it? What would happen yeah. if the Earth stopped spinning? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, give me six months and a big computer model. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But actually, on the small scale, you know, that, that you know if you think about uk weather you can have the existence of a hadley cell like circulation in the form of the sea breeze circulation yeah yeah where yeah. if you choose time scales which is short enough that the earth spin of the earth's not that important very locally you can set up a kind of hadley cell between the warm land and the cooler sea mm. so so these these types of circulations exist on many scales um in general circulation terms, as I said, Hadley cell well defined. The other two, to me, just drop out as a consequence of mid latitude storminess, etc. Okay, so this that maybe answers. The, have you got more questions, Philip? Like that maybe answers my next question, um, which is: <laughs> there aren't three cells, but <laughs> <laughs> but there are these kind of different regions or these different regimes, and we've said that we want to get the heat from the the equator to the poles so how does it sort of get across the boundaries such as they are and how do we keep pumping that heat and heat northwards which is what physics is desperately trying to do well actually a very important part of that is the ocean circulations Mm. i I can't remember off the top of my head if i'd been expecting this question i looked it up (laughs) but i think roughly half the heat transport is accomplished in the oceans. Yeah, so if only we had somebody that did ocean... Right. So- oh, I was going to say, o- oceanographers are very keen to make that point all yeah. the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, these weather people talking about weather, but uh, oceanographers are always, you know, yeah, bigging up the ocean. And, and on the long, you know, timescales, on the climate timescales, the ocean is super important. It's absorbing a lot of heat. Um, when we say and, a lot of heat, we mean sort of 98% of the budget or something well, yeah, like that? Exa- yeah, exactly. It's just got... got, got, uh, got uh, is able to hold much more heat, and you're able yeah, yeah. to sort of put it down into the into the ocean and uh, and lock it away for a little while, although not forever. So it's what we call heat capacity, right? And the the ocean, as you say, can just take that heat and bury it for a long time. But there's there's both the long period stuff, but even the shorter period, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, heat transport is very important, and I think of order a half. So we you know we think of currents such as the the Gulf Stream or the North Atlantic Drift, mm-hmm. uh, which you know keeps the UK climate milder than it has any right to be. Um, that's you know that's a very important mechanism for for transporting the heat, but then there are the atmospheric circulation systems, and um, they it's it that they're, they're interesting because they arise fundamentally these mid latitude d- depressions arise because of the build up of these gradients. So the gradients build up and up, and they manifest themselves in what we call frontal systems, which are basically frontal zones or areas of strong thermal So, d- so j- tell us a bit more about what you mean by the word depression. Yeah, depression. I mean, we the, de- the word depression arises from an, an analogy with contours on a map. Mm. We think of a pressure map as being like a contour map. So these terms have come about, terms like trough and depression so, come so, about as an analogy. So I'm a, I'm a physicist, physicist originally, and it's interesting getting closer and closer to meteorology as a science because it's a science that's got a lot of history and it's got a lot of um, sort of convention that's come out of that, that sort of operational history. So as you say... Um, 
Yeah, it's like you would look at an ordnance survey map and see contours and you see hills and, and things like this. So, so that's the, where that kind of language has come from, right? It has, and it's, it's just an area of low pressure. Um, and low pressure systems uh, can be thought of as being generated by air converging together and concentrating the spin of the Earth in a smaller and smaller area in the same way that an ice skater, as they pull their arms in will spin faster and faster because we all have in we might think we're all sitting still but of course we're all sharing the spin of the earth so i i always sort of slightly struggle with this bit have you got have you got some questions so when we talk about low pressure um and then we talk about all the air rushing towards the low pressure presumably when the air rushes towards it that's going to increase the pressure right and it's going to make it higher and then that air has got to go somewhere presumably it goes up so is there a sort of a high above the low after the air gets sucked in? And does it, does it sort of do a, a circulation that goes up through altitude as well? You know, the mental model often is this 2D map, yeah. but obviously the atmosphere is not 2D. No. Am I overcomplicating this? Or? No, no, that's, 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 just, that's exactly right. Air rushes in. I mean, if the Earth weren't spinning around, yeah, yeah. what would happen is that the, the pressure differences would be neutralised very quickly because the air would rush into low pressure areas and therefore increase the pressure because the weight of the column would increase. And very soon you, you would have no pressure gradients and actually that kind of what is what tends to happen at low latitudes where yeah. the, the spin of the earth is not important and so you don't get many pressure systems at low latitudes i mean tropical cyclones are a slight uh, exception to but that they're a different mechanism they're right? different, yeah. diff- completely different mechanism that's right um so yeah what happens is the, the air rushes in um and it has to be compensated for aloft by air diverging. Mm. And it is a, a three-dimensional circulation with a rising limb. Air rushes in, it rises, it spreads out at higher levels. And at low levels where it rushes in, it's concentrating the Earth's spin. And, and so that manifests itself as a, as a rapidly rotating storm. Yeah, so you, so that's good to know because I think we often gloss over that a bit, you know, when we're thinking about this 2D model. But um, you, you, you said something just now which um, you find yourself saying a lot when you're thinking about meteorology which is if the earth wasn't spinning (laughs) so because the earth is spinning when this air rushes towards the low pressure so we should say the low pressure just means what it sounds like there's less air there it's less dense you know it's like having a sort of a vacuum almost and so that's dragging the air in but instead of going in straight because of the Coriolis effect from the rotation of the earth it starts to spiral Yes. And that causes all kinds of um, complications, right? Yeah, it stops. I mean, it, it starts to spiral, as you say. You can, you know, if you want to get technical about it, you can talk about Coriolis effect. As I say, I like to think of ice skaters yeah. rushing in or, or water going down a plug. Yeah. You know, people notice that as water which, runs, which we should say for due diligence has nothing to do with the Coriolis. It's just a good analogy, despite what people the, will tell the you. Yeah, momentum yeah. in the yeah. bath or whatever. Exactly. You need a big bath. I think we did the calculation one day after looking up. Yeah. You need a bath, like a thousand bath. kilometers long or something. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that, that, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's right. The the air, whether you want to think of Coriolis or an ice skater, uh-huh. that's fine. The air tend, the air tends to to spiral round, and that spiraling round actually deflects the air, so it doesn't all rush into the middle and neutralise the pressure gradients as otherwise as quickly as it otherwise would do. Uh, but very importantly, there has to be a mechanism aloft for rapidly dispersing. Mm. Uh, mass away from that region because fundamentally low pressure means that the air weighs the column of air weighs less okay so you've got to think of the weight of the air right through the column and a lot of uh, cyclonic developments or or low pressure systems uh, are initiated by removal of mass 
aloft, very often close to jet streams, where air is flowing very rapidly. I was, I was, I was hoping that we would get to the jet. The J word. Okay, okay, the, the jet stream world. So, so, so could you, could you describe the jet stream? Uh, jet stream briefly, not jet stream. Jet stream. <laughs> yeah, jet, the jet stream. I mean, there are different jets in different parts of the world, but the jet stream that we talk about is is sometimes called the polar front jet. It's associated with this front between essentially polar air and equatorial air. You get strong thermal gradients, big differences in pressure across this zone. And that means that as you go up through the atmosphere, I don't know how technical to get here, but in, in cold air, because it, it weighs more, as you go up through the atmosphere, the pressure falls more quickly as you rise. And in warm air, it falls less quickly. Because the, the air at the bottom is squashed more than yeah. in the warm air, right? Squashed? I don't know if that's right. I mean, so because, because cold air weighs more, yeah. as you go up in altitude, yeah. the, the air at the bottom is compressed more than it would be if it was warmer. And that means that the gradient's changing faster? Yeah, it's denser. I mean, it's denser. So, so a slab of, of cold air, say five kilometres deep, for instance... Uh, exerts more pressure than a slab of warm air five kilometers deep so the the the, the drop in pressure you know everywhere where you go up in the atmosphere the pressure is going to reduce because you've got yes. less of the column above you but that reduction is greater per unit height that you rise in cold air than in warm air yes so, okay so so as you go higher and higher into the atmosphere uh, you get a bigger and bigger pressure differential and winds are fundamentally driven by these pressure gradients, pressure differentials. The stronger the pressure differential, the stronger the wind. And that's as obvious as it sounds. You know, the, the wind wants to go from the place of high pressure to the place of low pressure. Oh, but, 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 but. It's, it's, it's always a but. Six buts in that case, nearly. Um, there's, yeah, the, the, because of the spin of the Earth, there isn't this simple flow of air from high pressure to low pressure it tends to get aligned along the pressure gradient and this is why you know you can look at isobars on a surface map and visualize the airflows going along the isobars because of the spin of the earth and coriolis force and all the rest so, of it so it's maybe worth just um reiterate i know i keep reiterating this point but it's really fundamental when when you look at isobars you know the contours on a pressure map those are lines of constant air pressure and so naively you would expect the wind or the air, you know the air which locally is wind to flow at right angles to those isobars that's the obvious conclusion the naive conclusion but because of all these complications we've talked about with globes and spinning actually what it all um what's the word sort of what it all comes out as in the end is that actually it flows at 90 degrees to that right it flows along the isobars which is to me isn't intuitive right but that's just the way it break, it comes it falls out in the maths right and so you're you're talking about one particular case where there's a very big pressure gradient which is at the the kind of the junction between these two not cells because they're not cells but the, the, if they were you know in the mental model are two cells okay so you're saying that um the jet stream you might expect to be zipping straight across the border between these two things but it doesn't it doesn't it goes along the border that's right and and this flow along the the the, the pressure gradient rather than across the pressure gradient means that we could, if that didn't happen we would have just have a nice big self-neutralizing circulation which would only be driven whilst we had active heating and cooling going on and it would be a nice steady state slow process 
but it isn't. And so the fact that the wind blows along these uh, isobars means that we can't have that rapid neutralization of these gradients. And that's one of the reasons why the thermal gradients can build up and up is because the wind blows along them rather than across them. Yes. And so they get stronger and stronger. So you end up with a, a, a very strong jet. I mean, I, I looked that up before, before we came in and we're talking about, uh, so how high are we? We're 10 kilometers high, are yeah, we? Roughly, yeah. Roughly 10 kilometers yeah. high. And we've got a, a wind speeds of 50 to 250 miles an hour. Um, yeah. is, is that fair to say? I mean, yeah. I, I'm guessing mostly 50 and sometimes 250. Is that sort of top of the troposphere? Is that where we're That's the about? top. We're at the top okay. of the troposphere. And, um, and yeah, I mean, an average jet might be 100 miles an hour. Uh, so it's not, you know, that, that's kind of an average jet. In winter, sometimes, last winter, for instance, we saw them well over 200 miles an hour. As you said before, it's because the temperature gradients are stronger. And this, and this is the reason that it's quicker to get back from the US yeah. to the UK than it is to, to yeah, fly. And by the, right? the jet stream. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the, and, and the airlines make a lot of money by taking data from the Met Office, which tells them how strong the jets are going to be, where they are, and all the rest of it. So they can avoid them on the flight westwards to the US and ride them on the way back. Yeah, so I guess it might be worth reiterating that as well. They go from west to east. They go know? from west to east, and that's the consequence of the, the spin of the Earth and mm. all the rest of it, and the fact that therm- thermal gradient is with warm air to the south in the northern hemisphere, cold air to the north. Mm. But there is a, there is a uh, one, one thing that's worth saying is that there's a positive feedback effect which kicks in. When you generate these th- zones of thermal gradient, um, there's, a, there's a positive feedback which actually acts to tighten them further. And the, the tighter they get, the stronger the jet gets. And the stronger the jet gets, the more you get this indirect circulation, which further tightens them. So they kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps. If you can start to generate some sort of therm- zone of thermal gradient, it will then reinforce itself and get tighter and tighter and tighter. I mean, there are limiting effects. Such I was going to I was going to ask what are the limiting because yeah. you can imagine it getting to to a kind of straw level at a yeah. thousand miles an hour. Exactly. <laughs> what stops that happening? Well, there are processes like turbulence. Once you get very very strong gradients of of wind, for instance, it tends to break down into turbulent flow. And turbulence acts to lessen gradients, neutralize gradients. This is fairly small scale turbulence, but obviously it will act in an integrated cumulative fashion, and and tend to tend to limit this. There there are one or two other balancing mechanisms too yeah entropy wins every time doesn't it so so we've got you know fronts um being generated um and depressions being generated we've got the jet jet stream do these things interact and how do they interact to control our weather yeah um well first of all the 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 jet is i mean a jet has a a a width and a a length i mean across it's 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 much longer than it is either deep or wide but you can think of streams of air getting drawn into the jet stream, running through the jet stream, and then accelerating out the other end of the jet stream. And it's particularly these areas where they're accelerating into it and exiting, decelerating as they come out the back end of it. Those areas uh, tend to be areas where mass is redistributed in the upper troposphere. And so where you get uh, particularly areas where there's redistribution of mass away from the air column Mm -hmm. we call this as divergence essentially that tends to make the pressure at the surface fall okay so so what we're saying is coming out of the jet if i understand the air is sort of spraying out like it is coming out of fire hose or something like that it's spreading everywhere and and that's 
as you say, the mathematical term for that is divergence, right? The air is moving away from each other, so it's, it's getting stretched out, becoming less dense. And because, as you were saying earlier, the, the weight of all that column of air is lower, that means the pressure at the surface is lower. So that's starting to encourage a low pressure there. Is that right? Yeah. I, I would correct you slightly. So it's not getting less dense, but it is... It is you're removing mass. It's, yeah, at jet exits, also at jet entrances. It's not quite right to say that because it's splaying out, it's diverging. There are, at the risk of getting too technical. No, no, I'm go on. technical term here, ageostrophic motion. Most motion is geostrophic. And what, what that means is the sort of balance we were talking about, whereby wind blows along isobars rather than across them. But there is an important small component, which we call the ageostrophic component, which is the one which redistributes the mass in the column. And that really kicks in where you have strong acceleration and deceleration. You get this little, it's a relatively small, you know, it's maybe 10% of the real wind, but it has a disproportionate importance because it's that which is redistributing the mass in the column. Okay, so, so where is this happening? Where you talk about these jet entrances and exits. Yeah. Where, where are those? Yes, yeah, so we think of the jet stream as being this big, long sort of ribbon loop. going around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is this uh, the ribbon which has got kinks in it and curls yeah. and, and whatever? So uh, yeah. where are those entrances and exits? Uh, yeah, there's, that's right. We can think of this meandering loop that goes all the way around the world in these, this sort of waving type pattern. But there are zones of that that we sometimes call jet streaks which are where there's a particularly concentrated, intense flow, where it's, it's, it's going much more quickly than in other areas. And those correspond to generally to where the thermal gradient is greatest. So that, that's what's driving it. And that's where it's going fastest, presumably, is it? It's it right. becomes more concentrated because of the self-reinforcing thing you were mentioning just that, now, right? That's right. But certain parts of the, 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 you know, certain parts of the semi-continuous uh, loop around the, the Earth, they're more marked than in others. And um, so you have these distinct jet streaks, which are working their way way through the meandering jet stream. And that, you know, as as you know, as an operational meteorologist, as a forecaster, it's those that I focus on because I know those are centres of action. So, that, so that's quite interesting. You just said something just now. You said, you said that the jet streaks, so these extra fast bits, are making their way through yeah. the jet stream. So we've got this long ribbon, and then different bits of that ribbon are extra concentrated and fast. So. Um, do they move sort of eastwards? Or, so they move from west to east as well. So the actual air is going that direction, but these fast bits of air are also going that direction, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and the, the, the pattern of waves that you see, Rossby waves we call them, tends to be very slow moving. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the, so these things are working their way through. They're actually not moving quite as fast as the, the air wind itself is. So, so parcels of air will enter the jet, go through it and exit the jet. And that, that's very important. That's what leads to these effects. Of so this, this comes up in physics quite a lot, is that there's different components of this thing. And it's, it's important to realise that they're different and they're moving at different speeds. Yeah. So we've got the actual movement of the air. Yeah. We've got the movement of the, the peaks and the troughs of the wave of that air. And we've also got these streaks, the extra fast bits. And they're all moving at different speeds, right? They are. And yeah. what kind of speeds are we talking about? Are we talking about watching this track this across the Atlantic over several days or weeks or hours or what so kind we've of done the air what about this? yeah 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 well um yeah these jet streaks might be moving at something like uh desperately trying to think of my feet here <laughs> at uh at the speed of a typical weather system which yeah. for 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 you know really good beefy uh low pressure system or depression you might be talking about 40 miles an hour or something like that 
Whereas, so you've got some warning. You can see them coming. You, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, you can see you can see the Genesis region. Very often it's on the other side of the Atlantic, and that's what you keep an eye on off, off Newfoundland and Canada, for instance. And something which is kind of forming there today maybe influencing our weather in two or three days time so that sounds like the kind of insight that's useful when you're an operational meteorologist right this is the kind of thing that you you guys look at in order to to kind of so it's not just about you getting the weather forecast out our supercomputer which we've talked about before you're also looking at things like this and using your experience to know how they're going to play into tomorrow yeah and you look very carefully you're very sort of uh you know looking at the model with a very critical eye at, at these these particular zones which which may be the genesis zones of our weather for a few days time and one of the things about one of the sort of unfortunate things you might say about weather forecasting in mid-latitudes is that the development of a low pressure system together with the jet that might have formed it are subject to an instability whereby the smallest perturbation along a jet stream Will tend to grow depending on its size and there's a, there's a length scale which is favored will tend to grow exponentially and what that means is that if you have a small error in your numerical model that will also tend to grow exponentially if it's of a certain length scale okay so there's a there's a sensitivity to a certain kind of um uh, perturbation as you say like a, a certain kind of nudge to the atmospheric conditions and that can mean that a real nudge in the real world can be amplified and become a really significant thing, but it, it can also mean that an erroneous nudge yeah. in our model yes. can also be amplified. So yeah. it's a bit of a pain, really. It is a bit of a pain, <laughs> but actually it makes life interesting because otherwise it'd be boring if it was <laughs> model was right all That's the time. The we, we, yeah. We'd have solved weather forecasting. Yeah. We would have done ago, it. Yeah. You know, there would be nothing for us to do. But so, so uh, yes, it's it's a phenomenon again to to, to lapse into sort of technical talk it's a phenomenon known as baroclinic instability now the word baroclinic refers to these zones of temperature gradient and strong winds uh, in the instability self you know self-explanatory it's it means that you know a small thing can grow into a big thing quite quickly and it is it is literally an exponential growth rate of these things um and and that's why it's key absolutely key that your numerical model knows precisely as precisely as possible what the state of the atmosphere is at the beginning of the simulation because if it's wrong in the smallest detail well i say the smallest detail that there's a particular length scale for mm. both errors and real systems which is favored and will tend to grow and actually that's why our weather maps when we look at a weather map rather than seeing chaotic systems on all scales we, we tend to see a scale which is roughly a thousand kilometers across because that's the length scale which grows most quickly. So, so yeah, this is a this is a huge area, and I wonder if we talked about it before. There's a tendency people might have heard of chaos theory, and we've talked about it before. And the the chaotic nature of the atmospheric system is is tempting to think that just you can't predict anything because it's all chaos. But actually, different things are affected by chaos on a different scale, and sometimes that doesn't matter because it gets dominated by the next thing. And so, you know, it's erroneous to just think, oh, well, chaos, so it doesn't work into the future. Um, and so you're talking about the the scale that this particular um, system feels this effect, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's the, as you say, exactly. Um, some things, particularly the when we were talking about those meanders with the large-scale jet, those are on quite a large scale and that they tend to be more slow-moving for start-off, more predictable too. So there are various modes of motion which are easier to predict. Unfortunately, 
a lot of the energy, particularly in mid-latitudes, gets channeled into this scale that I was talking about, the baroclinic instability is it manifests itself at. Um, you know, the, when we think about weather systems, you know, we're talking about these low pressure systems, for instance, they very often dominate as, the, as they're doing at the moment, unfortunately, the weather over the UK. Um, I should just say, for yeah, sorry, mums and dads. We're, we're, we're recording this <laughs> we're recording during this. the uh, school holidays in school the UK, holidays, so, yeah. so it's a classic time for it to rain. Yeah, <laughs> classic time, that's right. And so um, there are elements of that, that that are predictable, it has to be said, the large-scale elements. And if, they, if those large-scale elements happen to be dominating the weather more than average, then we can be more confident so this is why sometimes we can have well we call it skillful sometimes we can have really good weather forecasts for a bit and then sometimes the weather it's just harder to forecast not because there's something inherently wrong about our model or someone else's model it's just inherently less predictable sometimes yeah that's right and there's there's a definite kind of limit to predictability which varies according mm. to the situation so, so tell us about um we've mentioned a couple of times now you know there's jet stream which is a ribbon which goes around the world with faster and slower bits but we've mentioned that it, it has meanders and and kinks and bends in it so why is that then um why is that i'm just trying to think of a good way to explain it i mean is rossby wave to a technical thing to mention the waves that we do see manifested i mean if you if you look on the planetary scale that is if you see we look on a spaceship and you're able to visualize atmospheric motion the main thing you'd see are these large-scale waves so that these are the large-scale things they they arise in part because of the spin of the earth in part because of this this effect that we were talking about the the heating of the equatorial regions the, the relative coldness of the the polar regions uh, so so those result in this current of air which which doesn't move in a straight line but 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 wanders around so why am I right in saying that we tend to get southwesterlies in the UK most of the time because of the way the jet stream kinks in our part of the world um yeah, let me try and think about that. The, the southwesterly flow is it dominates. That's right. I mean, the low level flow obviously yeah. is a manifestation of the superimposition of lots of different weather systems coming sure, across, sure, yes, and yes. And, uh, yeah, and also it's 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 a manifest. I mean, first of all, it tends to be westerly because of this effect we talked about with the warm air to the south, the cold air to the mm -hmm. north, which sets in in train this generally westerly current. The southerly part tends to be. A manifestation of the fact that we need on average to be pulling our air from the south to to neutralize this this thermal gradient uh -huh. you know because for for our latitude the uk we have we're warmer than we have any right to be you know 50 degrees north and a lot of other parts of the world would be pretty cold so I've, I've, I've got so i've got like a pub fascinating fact which i'd like to check about this because maybe my pub knowledge is rubbish but um is it something to do with the rocky mountains as well yeah. so the rockies drive the kind of the wave of the jet stream as i understand it the air gets sort of squashed up over the rockies and then there's a it deflects it off down into the gulf yeah. so so there's always you know this tendency to think about the uk uk being terribly warm because of the gulf stream um, as we mentioned earlier that is definitely something to do with it but actually nobody ever talks about the fact that we're getting all this air constantly pumped up from the Gulf, um, which is really warm as well. And that's another big sort of uh, factor on our, on our climate here. So is, is that right? Does the, does the Rocky Mountains, do they 
drive some of the kinks in the jet stream. They do, yep, you're quite right. You, you obviously go to different pubs from the ones I go to, if that's what they talk about. But, oh, um, the other people don't want to talk about it. Oh, right, just me. This is you, right. Um, yeah, that's the, 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 the mountain barriers in the Northern Hemisphere are very, very important. Actually, the fact that the Himalayas is, is nearly 180 degrees opposite the Rocky <laughs> it's Mountains. It's rather fortuitous or yeah, not, depending how you look at it. Exactly, yeah. but it's a very important influence on our weather and does really explain a lot of things for instance the so-called storm track that we have across the atlantic that that the the rockies as you say uh impose this what we call a ridge it's a kind of a a bump rather than a dip in the jet stream over the rockies that means down so could i just pick here i i I think this is really this is when i was talking earlier about meteorology and how it's a science that's come out of this very um sort of operational kind of historical thing I love the way that meteorologists sort of have this concept of up and down in north and south and they talk about sort of bumps and, and troughs or ridges and troughs and it always seems inher- you know, profoundly unobvious to me which way around those go but to be clear a trough is a bit of air that, that dips from north to south and back to north again yeah, which yeah. which in a meteorologist's mind is from up to down so it looks like a trough well I'd, yeah whether it's up or, up or down I mean I'm speaking very loosely obviously no no no, no but, but this is common parlance yeah. right this is, this is kind it of is. language that meteorologists use a lot right? but it, it arises from the fact too that because in the northern hemisphere the wind blows with low pressure to the left and that's Uh a consequence of the earth's spin and troughs are from this analogy we were talking about earlier on with contour maps physical contour maps areas of low pressure manifest as a trough areas of high pressure or an extension of high pressure manifest as a ridge just as a ridge of land would be this area of, uh, yes. of extension so so it's not simply that south is okay. down and north is up okay i was being a bit unfair yeah, <laughs> meteorologist yeah, is, yeah, no, bit, fair enough. yeah but back to the rocky mountains yes that we tend to get this ridge over the rockies about what we call a downstream trough in other words if you thought of the air like a stream further downstream that that tends to manifest itself as as a trough and that that waviness tends to continue because it, it's imposed by the the topography but then the the, the atmosphere if you like resonates yes. with that that thing and also the fact that the himalayas are on the other side exerting the same sort of effect tends to lead to this uh, dominance of two ridges around the world and two troughs we especially see this in winter because that's there's there's greater resonance then with the atmospheric pattern and that means that across the atlantic where the air is coming out of the trough perhaps in towards the next ridge we get this sort of southwesterly flow and and that southwesterly flow adds as a bit of a, a sort of a, um you know, railway track, if you like, for depressions to run along. The jet stream tends to move like that. Depressions tend to run along it. And ultimately, at low levels, the winds tend to align themselves along that as well. So this is why it's so blooming warm and wet in the UK, basically. But you should be thankful for it because we'd have it's horrible... Nice and green. It's nice and green. <laughs> You'd have horrible winters if you, you know... If you imagine went, all that skiing. It'd be rubbish, wouldn't it? Skiing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so... Okay, so why does this deflection happen then over the Rockies? So is it something to do with conservation of angular momentum? Sort of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's as air gets squashed vertically, as it's forced over a mountain range, range, it squashes vertically. And when it squashes vertically, it has to diverge horizontally in order to maintain mass. You can think of it as a bit like a bit of plasticine or something. Yeah, squash yeah. it down, it goes out. Now, as it, as it diverges, it's like the ice skater... Putting their arms out, putting right. their arms out, so they spin less, 
relative to the earth now that manifests that that reduction in spin manifests itself as what we call an anticyclonic tendency to to and and this, this is so is this because it's moving away from the set, the axis of rotation of the earth um let me think about this the yeah earth has its own spin mm-hmm. um and we tend to, when we look at weather maps and things, that tends to get filtered out because you're looking at a sort of an Earth relative view of things. But Earth has its own spin. This this is increasingly about the vertical as you go to higher and higher latitudes because you think of the Earth spinning about its axis when you're on the equator, you're 90 degrees to that. So that spin is not really manifested as spin about your local vertical. But the higher latitude you go to, the greater that is actually manifested as a spin about the local vertical. Now... As as you go equatorwards, what happens then is that in, in order to maintain that overall spin about your local vertical, you're losing spin of the Earth about your local vertical, and oh. there has to be a compensating increase oh. in Earth relative spin in order to conserve your overall angular momentum, if you like. Mm-hmm. I'm probably, you know, it's probably a bit difficult to follow all that because... So I, I, I was concentrating and I, I think I followed that. That just yeah, makes yeah. sense. We'll, we'll draw some pictures and put them on the website. I think, probably, I think we, should, we need but, extensive show notes but, this time. I mean, I, I guess what it all comes back down to is physics is a lot about conserving stuff and there's principles of conservation. One of the big ones that tends to come up a lot is conservation of angular momentum, yes. which is, you know, this is this one about the ice skater pulls the arms in and they go faster. And that's because the angular momentum stays the same yeah. whether when they got their arms out and in. Yeah. And this is a similar thing, right? There's, it's a similar thing. You know, it's complicated because there's a lot of spinning yeah. components going yeah. on, but ultimately it boils down to, to that kind of thing. And that, so that's why when the jet stream goes over the Rockies, it deflects southwards first straight away. Yeah, and, that, and then as it goes increasingly equatorwards, um, the, the, the increasingly local spin that has to manifest itself as brings it back so it, over, it overshoots. And it overshoots and, and, and goes back. back poles, and then it turns again, and that sets in train this meander, which is why we see these large scale waves. And I'd just like to say too that for the purists who might be listening, <laughs> technically it's not angu- angular momentum is a really good analog for okay. this. Technically, it's something called vorticity or even potential vorticity, which is, if you like, the atmospheric analog to this angular momentum, because it is it is possible to frame arguments in terms of pure angular momentum, but what what the the, the parameter we use is is potential vorticity which we can think of as an angular momentum okay great so i think the final bit of the jigsaw puzzle now we've talked about general circulation we've got onto the jet so how does the jet then affect us and the weather we get we've talked a bit about it creating low pressures and things but we haven't really got into kind of fronts and really how these fronts form and make our weather that we then experience on a small scale yeah that's right. Fronts are rather smaller scale features, particularly if you think of them across their orientation. They're long, they're like strung out, but, but actually the biggest gradients occur across those 90 right. degrees to their orientation. And these zones of very tight temperature gradient are associated with cloud and rain or snow in winter because you get this indirect circulation building up which whereby the warm air rises and the cold air sinks you can think of it if you like simplistically as warm air overriding a wedge of cold air because the cold air is denser and so as they come together the warm air rises up the cold air undercuts and actually this warm air rising 
cold air sinking uh, relates back to what I was talking earlier about a lowering of the overall centre of gravity because a, an equal volume of warm air has to be matched by an equal volume of cold air sinking. So the net centre of gravity has to come down. And actually, that is, if you want to think of the whole thing energetically, you can think of what the sun does is it heats the air, it raises the centre of gravity. This is this is how the whole heat engine works, if you like. And we want to find a, a mechanism to convert that potential energy into kinetic energy to, to dissipate the bit. And, and the kinetic energy is manifested as winds, but it's also manifested in this in this circulation that I've been talking about you know that that's where the actual release you get this focused release exchange of potential energy for kinetic energy in these frontal zones they generate the strong winds in a depression for instance and also lead to as air rises it cools it loses its capacity to hold water vapor clouds arise and then eventually precipitation as well so so i think it's what you're saying that these sort of effects at the front are a consequence of trying to redistribute energy a- across the front. And that's an important kind of transfer of, of energy. Is it, yeah? This is just the small-scale version of the kind of stuff we were talking about earlier. It is, but in small scale. But actually, in global terms, it, it is affecting this transfer of potential energy to kinetic energy in a very significant way, but in a limited area. This is yeah. why, you know, they're, they're called fronts as an analogy you know, is in the First World War, shortly after the First World War, that the the sort of uh, conceptual model of these frontal zones, without all the physics that goes. So, so this is like it was originally like battlefronts, right? Battle and front. where the armies were meeting, yeah. and this is two yeah. different air masses. So you know, we should say quickly that these fronts are the things you see on on sort of meteorological pressure maps. You know, with the the triangles on the lines and the the kind of circles on the lines. But well, well, just to back that up, we'll we'll make sure there's some videos of uh, people with uh, with water. Uh, of different colours and different temperatures mixing because I think that's, that can be really instructive as a mental picture yeah, of what's going on. Yeah. We've got to, we'll make sure in the show notes there are some videos um, which, which give you a good idea about, about what a front looks like or, or at least it would if it was water. So, so you've talked about how the, this gradient's really tight and, and you know that means that there's a sort of demarked line between these two bits of air and one of them sort of, you know colder than the other one one is hotter so how how tight is this could you know if i was standing on it could i have one hand in each bit of air i mean is it really that tight no, and, and why is it so tight yeah well it's i mean i referred to this before that you find that smaller scale processes such as turbulence tend to neutralize once you, you, yeah. know, you get to a very they tend to act in the opposite direction and tend to neutralize this but but it is it is tight because there is a positive feedback mechanism which is associated with this circulation i talked about which once it kicks in will 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 feed off itself if you if you can start to generate a thermal gradient it it it'll strengthen the jet the the agiostrophic circulation again to use that technical term associated with that jet will act to further increase the thermal gradient and so it feeds off itself so when you talk about when you're talking about the jet here you're not are you, you're not talking about the jet stream yeah talk, oh you are okay yeah so how, that, how does this Okay, I, I don't understand how that relates to to a weather front that might be coming across my house in the UK. Well, because the remember when we talked about the fact that when you have this th- these thermal gradients, as you go higher and higher in the atmosphere, they increasingly manifest themselves as a pressure gradient, which has associated with it a stronger and a stronger wind. The stronger the pressure gradient, the stronger so, the wind. So, is there a mini jet above the um, the front that's bringing the weather over my house then? 
There is such a thing as a low-level jet, which will occur in certain situations with certain types of fronts, and is one of the reasons so there's why... There's a tendency to it, I suppose, rather than it manifesting every time. Right? That's right, and... and um, yeah, there's you know quite often you find that when, for instance, especially a cold front, this is just a front moving such that cold air replaces warm air, is quite often has this mini low-level jet, which is a manifestation of the kinetic energy, which is generated by this release of potential energy. But but yeah, the, the front itself is intimately associated with the high-level jet. It's not in quite the same place because they tend to slope. That you get this because of this wedge of cold air and the overriding warm air. You, you generally have a sloping system such that the jet at high levels is somewhat displaced from the position of the low level front. So is that what's called frontogenesis? Frontogenesis, so yeah. Making a front in Latin. Um, so that that happens. Okay, so I guess is what you're saying that the the fronts actually generated as a direct consequence of the jet stream. But then it's not always under the jet stream, right? So can it, then after it's generated, it can wander off somewhere else, right? Yeah, I mean, you say that the, the cause, you know, we've got to be careful about causal linkages here. Uh, you could say first, you could say that the jet is is a result or this local strengthening of the jet, if you think of it as a semi-continuous feature, the local strengthening of the jet is due to the, the thermal gradient. Uh, but, but once that strengthens the jet, the jet then, the, the, the strengthening of that jet acts to, give a circulation which further tightens the front so they start to feed off each other okay okay so it's not that the they're sort of what's the word consequences of the same overall uh physical situation rather than one causes the other as such right that's right or okay. in certain circumstances one or other can be the low level thermal gradient can be the real thing which kicks off the whole processes or sometimes it could be the jet itself but it's difficult to be precise about the causality your front questions Doug but you, what you said earlier was true that they can kind of be separated yeah very very active fronts have a jet in close attendance and um, it's hard to describe I mean obviously jet seems a rather abstract thing to people yeah. but if you if you if you ever notice an active cold front going through a lot of heavy rain and eventually it clears away to sunshine the, the cl- whole cloud structure slopes backwards. So as the front moves away, you see the manifestation of this shelf of cloud, and eventually you'll see cirrus at the back edge, and the jet runs along that cirrus boundary. And if you, if you, if you watch the cirrus, it will be going at sort of right angles to the movement of the front. Yeah, exactly. So that's interesting. And Weather you, spotters out there should look out for that. And look, and look out for fast-moving... I mean, the cirrus is about 10 kilometres high, as you say, the jet's about that high. Uh, and which is a long, a long way off, but you can you can tell sometimes that it's really moving fast because you can see elements of this cirrus moving quickly. I, I looked up earlier uh, uh, the discovery of the jet stream, and it was pretty late that it was discovered. It, it right? seems. Well, I, I know that people were talking about um, uh, after the eruption of Krakatoa, they were talking about um, the equatorial smoke screen, and I guess they'd seen sort of high-level um, dispersal of ash and stuff. But then you get into the 1920s. Um, and, and a Japanese meteorologist who, who detected the, the jet stream from a site near Mount Fuji, but published it in Esperanto, so nobody <laughs> in, the West, in the West read it. Uh, and then it was sort of later on and towards the, and, and really not confirmed until the war. Is the that Second it? World War. Second this World is it. War. This is when forecasting for that level became very important because uh-huh. of long distance bomber raids they really needed to know to plan fuel loading and everything else what the winds were going to be and actually it was met with some disbelief when people reported winds of say 200 knots you know people were quite surprised at that and actually my father 
was flew in bomber crews in the Second World War as a navigator, he experienced this sort of thing very directly. And it could be absolutely critical what the, what the wind speed was. A very difficult thing to forecast at that stage because of obviously you know, numerical models, yeah. uh, relied very heavily on reports. But yeah, it, I mean, this was part of the whole uh, you know, formation of modern meteorology is that just the gradual realisation that these such phenomena existed and then piecing it all together in a three-dimensional sense. Because up until then, things like description of frontal zones and depressions was, was very descriptive. Mm. It didn't really have an account of the, three, the important three-dimensional structure, the relationship between uh, fronts and jets and all the rest of it. And that was a very important piece in the jigsaw when people started to observe this. Okay, and that's where our numerical modern numerical models become really important for the forecasting. Is it really you've you suddenly got an integrated? You've you've put the physics into the numerical model and yeah. let it go, and it and it describes these things that we see. Is that is that yeah. fair? Yeah, and actually, it also coincided, and this probably is a coincidence with the with um, co- computing. The the first, in fact, the first really um, proper application of computing was in weather models using very simple dynamics shortly after the second world war late 40s into the 50s it all came together the 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 observations the understanding and starting to get very early uh, computers too where's the nobel prize for the weather meteorologist that's what i want to know long time coming isn't it so as usual i could sit and talk to eddie all day but i think we probably better draw it to a close because we're coming to time now but thanks very much eddie really interesting as always so if you've got any questions, and I hope you've got lots of questions about this one, because this was, this was pretty in-depth. So you can tweet us at mw underscore podcast or email us at mostly.weather at metoffice.gov.uk. So send your questions in. Um, and until then, have I forgotten anything, Doug? I don't think so. I All think. right. Well, until then, see you for episode 20 of Landmark. See All you right. again. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.